Welcome to Optimal Health Uncovered. We are a group of health and wellness professionals in the New York metropolitan area where our mission is to empower you to live better. From specific injuries to general fitness trends, diets to sleep habits, our group of specialists are dedicated to bringing you the latest evidence-based research on the topics that matter most. Welcome to this session of Optimal Health Uncovered. Hi, everyone. I'm Todd Wolkowski. And I'm Mike Beecher. Welcome to the Optimal Health Uncovered podcast. Today, we are going to talk about something that is vitally important to our health, and that is great sleep. This is our first official podcast, and it happens to fall smack dab in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So sleep fits perfectly as a discussion topic. Mike and I will dig into the facts about sleep and how it can help or hinder you each day. Mike, why don't you get us started? Sure. So we chose this topic because of, we've heard from so many of you that during these stressful and kind of unprecedented times that your sleep's become disrupted. It's completely understandable because we're all in quarantine and it, this has caused sleep disruption for a variety of factors. Our work schedule's thrown off. You know, Our kids are home from school. Their schedules are thrown off. We're homeschooling. Everyone's told me about a tendency to eat a little bit more, eat later in the day, snack more frequently, which certainly plays a role. Nationwide, alcohol consumption has increased. Uh, we're all binge watching uh, streaming channels, Netflix and others. And of course, there's the massive stress of this global pandemic and the effect that it could have on our health, our financial stability, and those of our loved ones as well. So all of this stuff can throw our sleep cycles off. Uh, but now more than ever, it's important to be vigilant about great quality sleep because it has a, a significant effect on the immune system and our ability to fight off COVID-19 or any other diseases uh, that we would encounter. So we're going to talk through some strategies today about how to achieve better sleep. Uh, but I think we could start first by discussing what sleep exactly is and, and kind of why we do it. What is sleep, Mike, and how do we define it? So interestingly, we're, we're still kind of defining what exactly sleep is after all these years. But if you go to the dictionary, uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of sleep is that it's the natural, easily reversible, periodic state that living things undergo. It's the absence of wakefulness and the loss of consciousness. So we're not aware of our surroundings during this time. Our body is usually in a typical posture for you know humans. It's usually prone, supine, or side-lying. Usually we have some dreams that go on and there's changes in brain activity during this time. Uh, it's made up of a couple different cycles, which we'll talk about both non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And we know that it's essential for the restoration of our body's recovery and our mental functions, but we're still digging in into exactly what it does. We know that there are several phases of the sleep cycle. Can you dig into what those are? Sure. So your two basic phases are REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And then non-REM sleep is broken out into either three or four stages, depending on what sources you read. For simplicity, I think we'll just go with three phases here. So REM sleep is an acronym, REM, stands uh, for rapid eye movement. And during this phase, your eyes move side to side in a rapid fashion. Uh, your eyelids are closed. Uh, and this happens in the first 90 minutes of sleep. And then your whole sleep cycle, both non-REM and REM, you go through periodically throughout the night. So in a good night's sleep, you may go through all your sleep cycles about three to four times. So in, not, in REM sleep, um, this is when your brain activity is closer to wakefulness because you're, you're typically dreaming during this phase um, and your body is temporarily paralyzed. So you're not really flailing or acting out in your dreams, but your brain activity, which is kind of what defines different phases of sleep is a little bit more active and a little bit more like, uh, as I said, wakefulness. And then you get into non-REM sleep. Non-REM sleep, as I said, has three stages. Stage one is basically the changeover from wakefulness to sleep. It's a brief period. Uh, during this time, it's light sleep and it's categorized by 
heart rate, breathing, eye movement starting to slow, muscles starting to relax. So brain waves begin to slow from their daytime wakeful patterns, but you're not quite there yet. So this is your light sleep. Stage two and stage uh, three start to get into deeper sleep. So in stage two, you're going uh, into the transition from light sleep to deep sleep. So again, your heart rate, breathing continue to slow. This is where your body temperature starts to drop. Your eye movement completely stops. Brain activity during this phase is slow, but there are brief per, uh, bursts of electrical activities. Um, you may experience some kind of muscle twitching during this time, and you spend more time in this stage than any other. And then stage three is your deep sleep. Uh, this is what leaves you feeling refreshed and rested upon waking in the morning. Uh, typically occurs in longer periods during the first half of the night. And this is marked by the slowest heart rate, breathing rates, brain waves, all at their lowest levels during this phase. Uh, this is when tissue growth, regeneration, and repair tend to occur, and the body releases vital hormones, which we'll talk about briefly, um, that restore energy and vitality. So, um, and again, I said some sources will include a fourth sleep cycle, a fourth sleep stage, while others don't. But I think for simplicity, you just break non-REM sleep down into three phases. Why is sleep so important? Why do we need to sleep? So this is an interesting topic and has been the study of a lot of individuals, whole lives. People have written whole PhDs and books on this. And, and it's interesting because we spend a third of our lives sleeping and yet we're still figuring out exactly why we do it. As a species, it leaves us completely vulnerable, right? We're um, not necessarily the top of the food chain like we think of uh, at, at present times, but think about evolutionary standpoint, predators, et cetera, you know, that this was something that if we were doing, we know it's important. And we're, we're knowing now why it's important and it tends to be more of a brain phenomenon than anything else. Most of the research kind of points to the fact that, you know, all of our studies are showing that brain regeneration more or less is, is why we tend to sleep. But it's hard to study sleep because most of the sleep studies that we look at come from uh, derivation of sleep. So they take sleep away and then they see what it actually does. And, and in that construct, it's hard to say, is that because of the stress of just not sleeping or is it proving that sleep is important for a specific reason? So it's inherently difficult to study, which is why it's, it's still uh, not completely known. But we know a couple different things. We know that we die if we don't sleep. We know that as little as 24 hours of sleep deprivation can cause uh, psychosis, it can cause hallucinations, schizophrenic-like symptoms. Uh, we know that individuals that sleep less are more prone to heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other illnesses. Um, but from a brain standpoint, we know that it tends to be when our brains start to clear out some of the waste products that are produced during the day. We know that we use glucose a little bit less during this time. So it seems to be a restorative pattern for your brain. And a lot of studies that look at brain function, look at memory and retention of memory as being drastically affected by sleep. So we know that it is important for memory as well. What do we say to those individuals uh, who tell us they can function very little sleep each night? Uh, we would tell them that that's great, but it's not actually true. Um, you know, most individuals, and this is pretty concrete in the research, most individuals specifically in Western society are deprived of sleep. So uh, the gold standard number tends to be eight hours of sleep for adults. And that's kind of not something that's too flexible. That's what our body needs. Um, so people may feel refreshed and rested on less sleep. And there are individuals that can sleep better with less sleep, but as a whole, you know, if you're getting six to seven hours, you're doing okay, uh, but eight hours is optimal. Um, I think the average for Western civilization is something like 6.8 hours of sleep and trending downward each year. 
Um, so that's that's something that the the body does need amount of time to cycle through those phases of non-REM sleep and REM sleep periodically. And if they're not getting enough of those cycles, you're typically f- spending more of your time in, in light sleep and that's not restorative enough. What are your thoughts on napping? When we talk about, you know, eight hours being optimal, some people can't necessarily get eight hours during the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your feeling on napping? Uh, I think napping is, is important. I think if you're going to nap, you should try to go 20 minutes or more. The, the quick naps of 20 minutes, and there's a, a, some good data on that, um, That that's good, but you want to get yourself into a little bit of REM sleep and then trending towards deep sleep. So typically you're in REM sleep for about 90 minutes or so. So if you're getting only 20 minutes, you're, you're not necessarily restoring as much, but it's better than nothing, and it's better than um, certainly staying up and, and kind of fighting through it with caffeine. So it's, it's good. I think it's something that we should encourage versus discourage. And as a society, you know, I know the way I grew up, I wasn't really allowed to nap. Um, you know, parents would make you go out and, and do chores or whatever it is, but especially at certain phases of our development. And we'll talk about that teenage stage of development. Naps are a crucial part of it. So I, I encourage napping, um, whether you sleep well or not, if your body's telling you to nap, um, you should kind of follow those signals. And I think as a society, we don't do that enough. I think as you mentioned, teenagers, we've had a lot of changes recently in school times and uh, trying to push back when they get up in the morning. We know that they should be getting more sleep, yet they don't because they're studying a lot. What do you say to your uh, teenage clients that come in when they're talking about, you know, I don't have to get to school till eight thirty, nine o'clock now? But I'm, I'm staying up later to study. I'm staying up till one, two o'clock uh, because that gives me more time at night. Well, I mean, you're not going to retain as much. So the, the all-nighter concept, uh, you know, all of us have probably done it at some point in our education. We try to study and cram in material or we postpone stuff towards the end of the, the evening. If you're lacking in sleep due to that, all that data that you just took in was pretty wasted, right? So you're not going to retain that memory anyway. Two phases of sleep that are most important for that are REM sleep and deep sleep. Uh, it's studies have shown that um, procedural memory, like how to do a task, say computer coding or, or things like that, that is affected by deep sleep. And then REM sleep, uh, if you get good REM sleep, that's where your fact-based memory will, will kick in. So you have to kind of cycle through that a few times of the night to really ingrain everything you just learned in your brain. Otherwise, it was wasted time. So I think as we've gone towards you know schooling, you know, at least in Greenwich, for example, schools are starting later. It's a great construct, but if you're having your kids stay up later and just kind of losing it on the back end, it doesn't make much sense. So I think it's good in, in concept, but in practice, I think we really need to encourage, especially teenagers, to get a good uh, 10 to 12 hours of sleep. Because they we talked about adults needing eight hours. Uh, school-age children need about 10 to 12 hours. And in those teenage years, when, when so many things are going on, hormones are crazy, it's really important to get adequate sleep. Our kids are of different age. I have these teenagers at home. Talk to us a little bit about uh, younger kids. You've got a couple younger children at home. Uh, what's their sleep cycle like and how do you find the day? How do you and your wife adjust to their sleep cycles? Um, we adjust at, on the fly, just like all parents do. Uh, kids, you know, so I have a 20-month-old and I have a five-year-old. And, and from you know, 20-month-old to five-year-old, the big difference is the absence of naps kind of in that five-year-old period. Other than that, from a nighttime sleep, it's more, it's similar. It's not the same, but it's similar. So toddlers, uh, for example, 11 to 14 hours of sleep. Preschoolers go to about 10 to 13 hours of sleep. So it does get more adult-like as you get, as you age. Uh, and more time for those individuals, the, the kids that is, are spent um, in REM sleep. Uh, about 50% is spent in REM sleep. So they're spending a lot of time dreaming. They're spending a lot of that time in restorative. And you think about how much you're learning both cognitively and then from a motor learning standpoint during that time, that's 
that's probably why it happens. At least that's the prevailing theory as to why they think that they're spending more time in REM sleep. Um, and then your kids are going to tell you when they nap, whether they actually verbalize that or whether they're just acting out and, you know, having bad behavior. So naps are vitally important. And I think, you know, as we get older, we phase them out. Um, and it's not always necessary. So I still have my five-year-old if she's showing signs of fatigue, kind of lay down. And if she does, if she naps great, if not, it's just kind of time to rest and, and go forward uh, with the day. Let's talk a little bit more about the phases of the sleep cycle. How much time should you spend in each cycle? We'll go adults and then we'll go children. Uh, children actually just said, so toddlers spend about 50% of the time in REM sleep and the other 50% is broken out in between the non-REM phases. Uh, adults spend about 20 to 25% in REM sleep and the rest is spent in non-REM sleep. Uh, deep sleep you want, it's, it's varied based on the study you read, between 15 and 25% is, is about average. So if you're thinking about between REM sleep and your deep sleep, if you're getting 50% of the time spent in that, then you're having a great night's sleep. What we find with sleep studies and, and people that have trouble sleeping is more time is spent in light sleep and that's where the, the problems lie. Given the pandemic we're currently dealing with, can you speak to the effect uh, sleep has on one's immune system? So the simple answer is good sleep can promote good immune function and bad sleep can hinder immune function. Um, so you, I can get deep in the wormhole, but I'll try and stay kind of a general overview. You know, one thing is just um, stress hormones like cortisol. So cortisol is a stress hormone that's present throughout the day. Um, and that should decrease during night. And then you get other hormones that are released that are restorative, like human growth hormone and prolactin. Um, so if you're, if you're getting good night's sleep, the hormone balance will be better. Uh, and the other thing is just the effect of T cells. So T cells are your body's basically natural fight cells. So they, they promote immunity. They go in and they fight anti antigens and viruses and bacteria in, in our body. And they're, they function better and their helper cells function better if we get a good night's sleep. And that's been uh, pretty well documented. Yeah, I think this is uh, some of the questions we're going to get as we start to re-enter into uh, some sort of normalcy here in, in our office is just how the sleep and the immune function work together. What are some other effects of poor sleep? So we talked about poor immune function, impaired memory, impaired cognitive function. Those those are the, the main ones that, that I think uh, are important, specifically at a time like this longer term increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So sleep deprivation or poor sleep is linked to hypertension, coronary artery disease, and diabetes. Uh, specifically with diabetes, um, that's mostly due to your hormone balance being thrown off. So sleep restriction can lead to uh, poor tolerance of glucose. So the way that your body kind of metabolizes sugar, the way that your cells are sensitive to insulin. So you have a higher level of uh, glucose that's kind of just lingering in the blood that will create issues. And then again, uh, cortisol, if it's higher during nighttime levels due to poor sleep, then that's going to affect your deposition of belly fat, uh, central obesity, and then just your hormone levels with uh, two key hormones, ghrelin and leptin, which trigger uh, appetite and tell you kind of when you're full. If those are thrown off, which they do become thrown off with sleep, then that also leads to some metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes. And the other link uh, is, is cancer. So increased risk of cancer for individuals that have poor sleep. You and I both track our sleep. and we, As we know, it's very important for optimal health. Let's take a minute and discuss some of the wearables available today, such as the Aura Ring, the Whoop Strap, 
uh, Withings sleep uh, tracker pad and talk about a few of these and how accurate are they and how people should use them? So I, I do think people should use them. I, I think you should always know versus just kind of supposing or guessing. Um, but I think certain people do become a bit obsessed with them. So I think there's a balance. So uh, I think it's good to get a general overview. So for me, I'm, I use the Aura Ring currently and it was something that I used for about nine months to a year, I think at, at this point. And I, I knew I was one of the lucky individuals. I fall asleep as soon as I put my head on the pillow and I do tend to get a good night's sleep in terms of quality. Quantity at this point in my life based on work, commute, young kids is not where I needed to be. I, I could, you know, I know the data, I just kind of laid it out for everyone, but I, I'm not getting eight hours as much as I'd like, maybe two to three days a week, I'm able to get that. Uh, but during the work week, it's down. It's not where it needs to be. So for me, I wanted to look at how I could improve quality. Um, and if I'm going to try something new, whether it be an exercise routine, um, you know, cryotherapy or any of the, the wellness stuff that we, that we talk about, uh, I want to know what effect it's going to have my, on my body. So I do use the aura ring, um, in terms of accuracy, I think the jury is out as a whole. I find that the research I looked at from the aura ring, um, has shown that it is reliable for sleep. Um, a whoop strap, I know you have a little bit more experience with, so I'm not too familiar with that. What do you find? I've used all three uh, through the last couple of years. The Withings uh, pad that goes under the mattress I used a couple of years ago. Found that it was consistent, but not quite as accurate as, say, the Whoop Strap or the Aura Ring. I find it the easiest to wear and use and provides really good data. The Whoop Strap I was wearing for a period of, you know, three to four months, uh, very similar to the information coming out of the Aura Ring, a little bit more data on just overall exercise, tracking my exercise, which is a little bit better than the Aura Ring. But for me, I, you know, I tend to do, use other apps uh, on my iPhone that help me track exercise a little bit more and they do link to the aura ring and dump everything into one spot so i just kind of transition back to the aura ring as far as accuracy there's uh some research out there noting that it's about 60% accurate the numbers we're seeing and and it's not necessarily published research but just people talking about data and how they feel the uh the information coming out of these devices how accurate they are I look at it more along the lines of it's a benchmark and it's not data that you're comparing to your friends or your family members. It's data that you're comparing to yourself and you're trying to optimize, establish a baseline and then optimize where you are each day. So when I get up every morning and I uh, dump the data to the aura ring, I'm kind of looking at yeah, today, what's my readiness, but I'm looking at, you know, what's it been like for the last couple of weeks? And when you dump that data into like an Excel spreadsheet and you, you really dig into it, you can see trends. And I, as I look back, if I have a low readiness score, my HRV numbers were starting to dip and I hadn't adjusted anything else. It was usually a sign that my immune system in my body was, you know, I was either getting a cold or I was, you know, just running myself down. So I find it accurate as compared to my everyday baseline, which has been how I've been using it. Yeah, I think it's important. Like when we look at accuracy, you know, that's 60%, 60% as compared to what? And that's really the hard thing because you're looking at that compared to say a sleep study. A sleep study when you're in a lab, is it's the gold standard of what we have, but it's not really naturalistic sleep. Like if you take yourself out of your normal bed, out of your environment, you're going into a lab, are you really sleep, are you studying something that's accurate, right? So it's a little bit flawed, I think, and it's tough to manage, but 
the key point you said is you're comparing yourself to yourself. That's your baseline. You're sleeping in the same environment. I think once you have that data, it is accurate as compared to yourself and you can really see how you intervene. Uh, and then you mentioned uh, HRV, that's heart rate variability for those who, who aren't aware. That's something that uh, is essentially a measure of general health and wellness, uh, very re reliable, predictable marker. And it kind of points to your, your parasympathetic uh, nervous system, which is your rest, digest, recovery nervous system. And if you have a higher heart rate variability, that means you tend to be sleeping better, recovering better. Uh, and that's something that I use the Aura Ring for as well. I used to use Elite HRV, which is a great app. I do recommend it, but I would put on a heart rate strap in the morning, but you're just getting a three to five minute snippet of your, your heart rate variability. If you're doing that as where the aura ring or the whoop strap, they're taking, uh, you're taking it during your sleep cycles and they're taking it for a longer period of time, which gives you a little bit more of a robust data set. How do you help your clients improve their sleep? Are there any magic tricks or hacks uh, to help people? Um, I don't know if they're magic tricks per se, but I think there are some hacks for sure. And I think a lot of people are aware of them. They just have to figure out how they carve them into the day. Um, caffeine is, is one thing, you know, how our bodies metabolize caffeine is a genetic thing. So in, you can get genetically tested to see how your body, body metabolizes caffeine, but in, most of us don't do that. We, I think a general overview is just avoiding caffeine later in the day. Um, half-life of caffeine is about six hours, which means at 12 hours, it's all out of your system but six hours, about half is out of your system. So if you're taking in caffeine later in the day, you're probably gonna have trouble falling asleep and you're gonna stay in those lighter phases of sleep. So for me, my, my cutoff is about 1 p.m., plus or minus 30 minutes here or there. So that that's definitely something I'd recommend. And some people know that they're kind of caffeine intolerant and they're just wired. So you kind of have to listen, listen to your body with that. Alcohol is, is another uh, easy one. Alcohol used to be thought of the nightcap of, of getting you a nice night's sleep and kind of transitioning to sleep. But alcohol really doesn't give you sleep. It kind of sedates you. So it hinders naturalistic sleep. It causes more fragmented sleep. You're more wakeful throughout the night. It also can produce anxiety for a lot of individuals and you'll kind of wake up, your heart's racing. You know, I've certainly found that at some points in my life. Uh, it decreases the amount of REM sleep you have, which impairs your memory and learning. We talked about the importance of REM sleep. And there's some interesting studies I'll just highlight. One where they looked at college students and they, these college students were um, all taught the same task. It was a coding task, so that's procedural memory. Um, and then they were tested on retention of that memory seven days later. So there was three groups of these college kids. One group had no alcohol for three nights after learning the task. Group two, they got moderately drunk on the subsequent nights, the night after learning the task and the subsequent three nights. And then uh, group three had natural sleep on one and two, night one and two, which was no alcohol. And then they, were, got, they got mildly drunk on night three. So the interesting results uh, was that, uh, as you guys would anticipate, group one remembered everything. Uh, group two lost about 50% of the knowledge. That was the group that uh, got drunk three nights in a row. Group three, uh, which is the most interesting yet uh, you know, depressing group, 40% uh, of the knowledge was forgotten. So remember, those are the individuals that were sober on nights one and two, but uh, got moderately drunk on night three. So it just shows you that alcohol can hinder memory even nights after consumption. Um, so it doesn't mean obviously don't drink alcohol. I'm not advocating that. Do what you, you want with that. But just know that it does have an effect on your sleep your memory and your cognition. And these effects can be seen as little as, as one drink. The biggest thing anyone who's talked to me here in the clinic or otherwise that I'm, I'm pretty firm on is just how much that artificial light is affecting us and affecting our sleep. Artificial light is something obviously with modern society that's not going away, it's necessary, but everyone's heard of melatonin. Some of you guys may supplement melatonin. Melatonin basically uh, is released by your body in response to darkness. 
And melatonin is a hormone that um, helps regulate our circadian rhythms, helps facilitate sleep. So if we're getting more light later in the day when we should be getting that darkness cue, decreasing the levels of circulating melatonin, and thus we're not going to be able to sleep as effectively as we want to. Um, so incandescent lights are the best lights. Um, I know there's a lot of LED lights uh, that are definitely more energy efficient and give you a better light quality, uh, but they do hinder your sleep a little bit more. And the worst of all is blue light um, from these LED bulbs. So we have receptors in the eye that, again, signal that daytime stimulus if we're looking at blue light later in the day. So we're going to get worse sleep. We're going to get less melatonin. So we really want to decrease the use of, of iPads, tablets, um, phones later in the day. Two to three hours is really what I would recommend. Uh, reading a book versus reading on a tablet is certainly preferred. Uh, TV, you know, I, I do watch a little bit of TV before bed, but not right before bed. I don't have a TV in the bedroom for that reason. If we're watching TV, I wear blue blocking glasses. There's definitely blue filtering technology, whether it be on your computer, on your phone, night shift or nighttime mode is, is present. So trying to turn the brightness down, what, wear blue blocking glasses. They make, you know, more stylish ones now than they used to. Um, are definitely de things that I'd recommend. So uh, sleep is definitely drastically affected by light. Bedroom should be dark. I mean, it should be either blackout shades uh, or just a sleep mask as dark as possible. Decrease lights um, that are um, both ambient lights, street lights, etc., cetera, uh, should be blocked out as well. Um, winding down is an important thing. So a lot of us will go from answering an email or watching you know, Game of Thrones or something intense on TV, and then you go right to bed. Uh, and that's obviously not the, the ideal thing to do. So, you know, also exercising or eating large meals is, is not winding down. So you want to avoid that stuff between two to three hours uh, before bed. So whether you call it meditation, mindfulness, or just breathing, doing one of those things or all of those things before bed is, is important. So for me, I, I practice four, seven, eight breathing, which is four second inhale, seven second hold, and eight eight second prolonged exhale in through the nose, out through the mouth. Um, Dr. Andrew Wiles is somebody that definitely promotes this as kind of the natural nervous system tranquilizer. But whether it be this or other forms of breathing, it really doesn't matter. Breathing, deep breathing is one of the forms that we can utilize to tap into our parasympathetic nervous system and kind of help get us off to sleep uh, and help just kind of calm us down. It's good for so many things. But you know, for me, it's just kind of winds me down at the end of the day. Other kind of hacks is maintaining a regular sleep schedule, even on weekends. Uh, within reason, like you don't have to set the alarm clock at the same exact time. In fact, if you don't have to set an alarm clock, don't. But try to wake up, stay on the same schedule, especially now during this pandemic. I mean, it's all over the place. People are staying up later. They're not necessarily having to commute into to work or get on uh, on conference calls as early, for example. So they're, they're going to be off uh, shift. But try to stay on your same schedule because you've established a certain circadian rhythm of, over all these years. If you're going off of it now, it's going to be that much harder to sleep, sleep effectively, and then get back into the cycle when you need to. Temperature is a huge thing. So keeping temperature cool, cooler than a lot of people do. You know, the ideal temperature is about 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and everyone's spouse partner may be a little bit different with this. So there's different devices. Um, you know, The chili pad, for example, is one that you can use where it keeps one individual at a set temperature, that ideal temperature, as where another individual may not need that or want that. Um, so simple hacks that don't require a chili pad is definitely don't wear socks, definitely keep your hands and sometimes even your feet exposed and out of the sheets because that's where you have the highest density of capillaries, where, which is where your body's small little blood vessels where you can dissipate heat. Uh, washing your face, washing your hands before bed, just the presence of a different temperature with warm water and then your body's evaporation of that will help that as well. Um, showers, warm showers, 
about 20 minutes before bed, uh, within 20 minutes of bed is important as well. And I think that's about it in terms of hacks. What are your thoughts when people say, some people recommend taking a cold shower as a way to cool your body and your core temperature down, whereas others would say warmer shower, get the blood flow to the extremities, which is going to help cool the core temperature. Uh, what's your feeling on the cold showers? I don't necessarily think it matters whether it's warm or cold. It's it's how your body regulates the temperature. Your core body temperature has to de- uh, decrease by about two degrees. So if you're taking a warm shower, well, then your body has to go into cooling phase, which is why those are, are recommended. If you're taking a cold shower, you're kind of already decreasing your core body temperature and your body will regulate up to, to what it needs to. So it doesn't necessarily matter cold shower or warm shower from anything that I've read. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're washing your face, your hands, cold water or warm water. It's just how the body is then triggered to stimulate just that body temperature change that really is effective. I think as I'm speaking to my clients, you know, you touched on the the big six, the coffee, the alcohol, the blue light, breathing temperature, and then your sleep schedule. It's often difficult to, uh, to have people try and change these things all at once. So I usually recommend, you know, phasing in or trying one thing and seeing how it works. And then a couple weeks later, adding something else. It's, it's about checks and balances and having your baseline. They know they're not sleeping well, make one change, see how they respond to that. If positive, continue to go with it and then maybe add more. If negative, you know, move on and try, try another approach here. Is that the typical approach that you'll take with your clients? Yeah. All of these things are important, but I encourage people to, like you said, avoid the kitchen sink approach of just doing everything at once because then you don't really know what's affecting you. So I tend to do, you know, my N of one, my one subject studies, which is myself, the person I experiment with the most is just kind of adding in one variable at a time to see what's really most effective. And, th- and that's what I'd recommend for my clients as well. For me, it's been blue light has been huge. Uh, even now that we're doing more telehealth sessions throughout the day, just based on the fact uh, of where we are as a, as a society, I'm spending more time in front of my screens. And initially I wasn't wearing my blue blocking glasses as much even during the daytime and my sleep has been affected. So for me, that's, I think the main thing and just kind of winding down and not going into sleep with like fight or flight type hormones. I think we've covered a lot today on sleep. There's definitely a lot of information that's coming out on a regular basis regarding sleep. We definitely speak to this uh, often with our clients. And I know there'll be more information that we'll talk to uh, down the road. So thanks for taking the time out today and digging into this. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. If you have questions for us or want to hear about something specific in an upcoming episode, send an email to podcast at performance-pt.com. And be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more tips on optimal health. Until next time, be well.